All right, everybody. Um, today we're actually going to talk about um, Roe v. Wade and the significance of the uh, Supreme Court overturning that ruling. And um, yeah, so that will be our thing today, our podcast episode today, and to extend um, beyond our abortion episode um, last time. So we'll dig deeper here with the significance of what's going on today. All right, so we're going to do um, the uh, background of Roe v. Wade. And so I've got a few um, things up here. Um, the National Geographic website, uh, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, about the brief history of Roe v. Wade, and uh, Britannica, a summary and origins of Roe v. Wade. So I'm going to start with the Smithsonian Magazine. Um, it's a, it was, let's see, uh, published June 24th, 2022 by Milan Solly, Associate Editor History. So it says, who was Norma McCorvey, uh, the woman behind Roe v. Wade, uh, dubbed Jane Roe? Uh, McGorvey sought an abortion after becoming pregnant in 1969, but was thwarted by Texas restrictive reproductive laws. <laughs> Obviously, nothing has changed since then, but making it worse. So, 49 years after Roe v. Wade upheld the constitutional right to abortion in the United States, the Supreme Court has overturned the landmark 1973 ruling dealing a significant blow to reproductive rights nationwide and enabling some two dozen states to imminently ban or limit access to the reproduct or um, access to the procedure. Um, so let me go back up here real quick. So passed by a majority of 63, the court's ruling on Dobbs, the Jackson's Women's Health Organization arrives just under two months after the leak, which, okay, hold on, sidebar. We know that leak was meant so that when it actually came out, it wasn't such a big blow. Let's be real, okay? So, um, of a draft majority opinion by Justice Samuel Alito, which his ass needs to go, um, first reported by Politico in early May, the draft represented a full-throated, unflinching uh, repudiation of Roe, according to reporters Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward. Today's final opinion, also by Alito, closely echoes the leaked draft, arguing that the authority to regulate abortion must be returned to the people and their elective, elected representatives, which I think is bullshit because this is women's health. You know, this is controlling women. This has nothing to do with regulating abortion and returning it to the people and their elected representatives. This is between a woman and her doctor. Why? I mean, this is controlling women, okay? This has nothing to do with regulation. This is regulating women and regulating women's health. Okay, so back to the article. <laughs> In uh, September 1969, 21-year-old uh, McGorvey became pregnant for the third time. She had a difficult childhood, dropping out of school in the ninth grade and ending up in a reform school after a motel maid caught her and another girl kissing. Um, 
McCorvey had relationships with both men and women, but self-identified as a lesbian. I see, this is a lot of shit I didn't even know. All right, so she wed for the first time at age 16, but divorced her husband when he became physically abusive. Okay, so after giving birth to a daughter in 1965, she began struggling with drug and alcohol abuse, eventually, eventually relinquishing custody to her mother, though, she, though whether she did so voluntarily is up for debate. In 1967, she gave birth to a second child whom she put up for adoption. During her third pregnancy, uh, McCurvey hoped to get an abortion, but laws in her home state of Texas were highly restrictive, allow, only allowing abortions if carrying the fetus to term threatened the mother's health. As Aaron Blakemore points out for National Geographic, uh, McGorvey, unlike wealthier and better resourced women, lacked the means to travel to one of the few states where she could get a legal abortion and she could not afford to pay for one illegally. Oh my God, this is like controlling women. I was a woman alone with no place to go and no job. Uh, McCurvey told the Southern Baptist Convention News Service in 1973, no one wanted to hire a pregnant woman. I felt that there was no one in the world who could help me. See, this is, and then low, low it could be like people that have no, like horrible healthcare access. So I, and she obviously has had a troubled life. Okay, out of options, McCurvey, McCurvey turned to Dallas lawyer Sarah Wedding, Weddington and Linda Coffey who were in search of the perfect plaintiff for their attempt to challenge Texas's abortion laws. In 1970, when McCurvey was five months pregnant, she signed an affidavit that she later claimed to have never read. In the words of the New York Times' Robert D. McFadden, she just wanted a quick abortion and had no inkling that the case would become a cause célèbre. Uh, McCorvey's lawyers fired the case at a federal district courthouse in Dallas on March 3, 1970, dubbed Roe v. Wade the lawsuit anonymized McCorvey as Jane Roe. The second half of its name refers to the defendant, Henry Wade, the district attorney charged with enforcing Texas's abortion laws. Ah. All right. So Coffey and Weddington argued that, te that Texas's abortion laws violated women's constitutional right to privacy. Hmm. The district court ruled in the pair's favor by, but dismissed their request to stop enforcing the state's old abortion laws, leading both Wade and McCorvey's uh, team to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. Weddington, then just 26, presented her oral arguments to the all-male Supreme Court on December 13, 1971. By then, notes Joshua Prager for The Atlantic, she and Coffey had made row into a class action suit demonstrating the case for the constitu constitutional right of all Americans to determine the path of their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, just before opening arguments, two Supreme Court justices retired, leaving only seven justices to hear the case per the Embryo Project Encyclopedia. The remaining justices deemed the Texas laws unconstitutional by a four to three majority. But Justice Harry A. Blackman, who'd been tasked with writing the majority opinion, suggested re-arguing the case in front of the full bench a polarizing proposal that sparked fears among the majority that the two replacement justices would vote against them. Re-arguments took place on October 11, 1972, and the court issued its ruling on January 22, 1973, effectively legalizing abortion across the U.S. by a 72 majority. So it made it even better. Okay, so by the time the court ruled on Roe, McCorvey's pregnancy had long since ended. Unable to obtain an abortion, she gave birth to a baby girl, 
On June 2nd, 1970, she subsequently gave the child up for adoption. Roe v. Wade was a watershed for women in general, but irrelevant for Ms. McCorvey in particular. Wrote the Washington Post, Emily Langer, in McCorvey's 2017 obituary. Oh, shit, she's already passed. <sighs> for years after the Roe decision, McCorvey, who, who'd ultimately had limited involvement in the case, kept her identity as Jane Roe, a carefully guarded secret, even hiding it from her long-term partner, Connie Gonzalez. On the day McCorvey file finally revealed her role in the case, she picked up the newspaper, twiddled her thumbs real nervous, Gonzalez told the New York Times' Alex Witchell. And she told me about the Supreme Court decision, and I said, that's fantastic. And she said, but you're a Catholic. And I said, so what? I feel a woman's got the right to choose. And she said, well, I'm Jane Roe. And I said, yeah, and I'm the Pope. <laughs> McCorvey started publicizing her story in the 1980s, advocating for the right to choose. But see, okay, so I'm going to back up here real quick. So her partner, the Gonzalez woman, um, you know, I'm a Catholic too, but it's pro-choice. I'm pro-choice. Like, you know, it is not my job to tell another woman what to do with her body. Like, who gives a shit? I mean, that's between the woman and, and her daughter. It's like, shit. And her partner, whoever it may be, man or woman or whatever. McCur okay, McCorvey stated, uh, okay, start publicizing a story in the 1980s advocating for the right to choose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But in 1995, she made an abrupt about-face, declaring herself a born-again Christian and a staunch opponent of abortion. That's weird. Soon before her death in 2017, McCorvey changed her story once again, claiming that she'd only supported abortion rights. And in an interview for the documentary, a.k.a. Jane Roe, she said, I took anti-abortion advocates' money, and they put me out in front of the camera and told me what to say, and that's what I'd say. When the documentary's director asked if it if it was all an act, McCorvey replied, yeah, I was good at it too. In her 1994 memoir, I Am Roe, uh, McCorvey offered a less cynical view of her place in the fight for reproductive rights. Um, I wasn't the wrong person to become Jane Roe, she wrote. I wasn't the right person to become Jane Roe. I wasn't the wrong person to become Jane Roe, she wrote. I wasn't the right person to become Jane Roe. I was just the person who became Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, and my life story, warts and all, was a little piece of history. So there's the Smithsonian's brief history of Roe v. Wade. Okay. Um, Britannica. Um, on June 24th, 2022, at 10.36 a.m., um, they just say Roe v. Wade legal case in which the U.S. Supreme Court on January 22nd, 1973, ruled... 7-2, to two, that unduly restrictive state regulation of abortion is unconstitutional. In a majority opinion written by Justice Harry A. Blackman, the court held that a set of Texas statutes criminalizing abortion in most instances violated a woman's constitutional right of privacy, which it found to be implicit in the liberty guarantee of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Okay, quote, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, unquote. Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court in 2022. So, um, and then it goes on again. The case began in 1970 when Jane Roe, a fictional name used to protect the identity of the plaintiff, Norman McCorvey, 1947 to 2017, instituted federal action against Henry Wade, the district attorney of Dallas County, Texas, where Roe resided. Um, and then it goes on to say what... Um, 
the um, other article stated, the Smithsonian. So um, National Geographic, um, uh, sorry, hold on, uh, I was switching over. All right, so um, Roe v. Wade from National Geographic, the tumultuous history that led to the landmark, landmark Roe v. Wade ruling. In the 1960s, support for abortion mounted as two public health crises caused miscarriages and severe health problems among newborn children, setting the stage for the historic U.S. Supreme Court, which I refer back to my um, previous, uh, most recent um, episode um, on ab abortion. You know, um, women and, and their babies, unborn children, were, were not, the, the women were, you know, having a lot of issues because they were doing like back alley, quote unquote, back alley abortions because a lot of women could not afford it. Um, so in April, 1970, Jane Hodgson picked up the, um, phone, called her local police department, asked them to arrest her. Earlier that day, the Minnesota physician had performed an abortion on a 24 year old mother of three who had contracted, uh, Rubella, a disease associated with miscarriage, infant death, and severe health problems for infants that survived pregnancy. As in many other states, Minnesota law. Oh, uh, this was published. I'm sorry. This article, National Geographic, was published June 23, 2022, um, by Aaron Blakemore. So, as in many other states, Minnesota law only allowed uh, therapeutic abortions, procedures that terminated pregnancy only if a mother's life was threatened. Hodgins had seen patients beg for illegal abortions and suffer, even die, when they obtained them from other unqualified providers. In an affidavit to the grand jury that indicted her, she wrote that she had to make a choice between following the existing law or fulfilling her obligation to her patient, her profession, and her society. Um, in anticipation of a Supreme Court decision expected to shatter decades of precedent and upholding the right to terminate pregnancy, here's a look at the period that led up to the landmark decision, what those two cases involved in their um, legacy. All right, so um, recognizing, oh, I'm sorry, reconsidering the nation's abortion bans. Though abortion was not particularly controversial in the nation's early years, refer back to my previous episode, um, opposition grew in the late 19th century and the procedure became increasingly taboo. By the mid-20th century, it was illegal. The women regularly sought and got abortions. They were a felony in nearly every state by the late 1960s, and these laws offered few and sometimes no exceptions related to the mother's health or cases of incest and rape. Again, controlling women and wanting to keep white Caucasian as a majority and control in this country. During that decade, though, two public health crises brought debate about abortion to the open. The first was a drug marketed uh, uh, th uh a drug marketed in Europe as a remedy for morning sickness, anxiety, and sleepiness. About 10,000 babies born worldwide to mothers who had taken thalatamine had severe physical anomalies, and thousands of women experienced miscarriages due to the drug, leading manufacturers to withdraw it. Though the drug was never legal in the U.S., Sherry Finkbein, an American actress known for her role as Miss Sherry on uh, Romper Room, a show for kids, inadvertently took it early in her pregnancy. After learning she had taken the drug, she gave a newspaper interview in hopes of publicizing its dangers. 
She had asked for an, uh, not amenity, but after the story broke, her hospital refused to provide an abortion and neither would any other facility. It would take a trip to Sweden to finally get the abortion, although she weathered a public condemnation and death threats and was fired from her job, and the majority of Americans supported Finkbein's decision, according to a 1962 Gallup poll. All right, so with that, even in the 1960s, my question is, how much money are these people getting? Like, Supreme Court people, you know, kickbacks and shit, and, and the lobbyists are giving to these people to, to vote against women's rights. Okay, whatever. Okay, support for abortion mounted in the mid-1960s with an epidemic of the rubella virus, also known as German measles. Pregnant women who had contracted rubella became increased, uh, began experiencing miscarriages. Many newborn babies died, and an estimated 20,000 were born with congenital abnormalities like deafness, atypical autonomy, anatomy, anatomy. Okay, I totally jacked up that word. Intellectual disabilities and heart problems. Though many doctors like Hotch, Hodgson supported abortions for pregnant women who had contracted rubella, laws out, outlawing abortion in most cases put them in danger of arrest, loss of licensure, and other penalties. As debates about abortion raged, two test cases that would transform U.S. abortion law were making their way through the U.S. Uh, court system. Jane Roe and the Constitutional Right to Privacy. Okay. So again, in 1969, 21-year-old Norma McCorvey became pregnant. It was her third pregnancy because of struggles with money and substance abuse. She did not parent either child. Um, this time she wanted an abortion, but though some states have begun to slightly liberalize their abortion laws, McCorvey lived in Texas, which banned abortions unless the mother's life was at risk. Unlike wealthier and better resourced women, McCorvey could not afford to leave the state to obtain a hush-hush abortion from a reliable physician. Uh, but she had heard about a pair of attorneys looking to file a test case with a potential plaintiff like her. Um, someone whose age and social class would illustrate the unfairness of abortion laws. So she agreed to the... All right, so Mary Doe expands the argument... Okay, so meanwhile, Doe v. Bolton, another test case... Uh, wended its way through the courts when 22-year-old Georgia resident Sandra Bensing got pregnant with her fourth child in 1970. She said she wanted an abortion. Though married, she was pursuing a divorce and had trouble trying to raise her children, each of whom had been adopted or were in foster care. Again, somebody who doesn't have the resources. At the time, Georgia's forbade, Georgia forbade abortion except in cases of danger to the mother's life or the possibility of a disabling injury, cases of rape, or cases in which a fetus was likely to be born with a severe anatomical anomaly or mental disability. Each potential favorite uh, was accompanied by an almost insurmountable burden of proof. A woman who had been raped had to document it, for example, oh sweet Jesus, and family or friends could go to court to bar her from getting the procedure, all oh, for the love of Jesus. When a hospital refused to provide Bensing a therapeutic abortion, attorneys from the Legal Aid Society and the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, recruited her for a test case and sued Georgia Attorney General Arthur, Bur Arthur Bolton. The lawyers argued that not only should Mary Doe have been approved for the abortion because of a psychiatric disability, but that the law infringed on her constitutional right to privacy and self-determination and prevented medical professionals from doing their jobs. 
Bensing eventually got an abortion at a private hospital that was not subject to the same laws as the public hospital, but the lawsuit went forward anyway. In 1970, a three-judge district court panel found that women had a right to pursue abortions if they had not if they had not been raped, weren't in danger of death, and were not carrying a fetus that was at risk of severe health concerns. The panel also ruled that restrictions on abortions within the first trimester trimester violated women's privacy rights, but added that states had a valid interest in overseeing abortion as part of their duty to protect life, which includes fetuses. Jesus, it's controlling women. That's all it is. That's a, that's a bullshit excuse line, whatever. Okay, so Roe and Doe at the Supreme Court. In 1973, both cases and the future of abortion access in the U.S. were in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, all right, so then um, the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton on the same day. On January 22, 1973, it found in Roe that a woman's decision to terminate her pregnancy falls under her constitutional right to privacy. It also ruled that, ruled that states have an interest in protecting both pregnant women and the potentially of human life, allowing states to regulate abortion after the first trimester of pregnancy and enact requirements about things like the professional qualifications of people performing abortions. Um, during the third trimester, states could prohibit the procedures as long as their laws contain exceptions for the mother's life or ongoing health. And Doe... The court reiterated that a woman's constitutional right to an abortion is not absolute, but that it was unduly restrictive to require more than one medical practitioner um, or entire hospital committees to weigh in on an abortion's necessity. The court also found that states could not at any point in pregnancy prohibit abortions deemed necessary to protect women's health, which could include all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the women's age relevant to the well-being of the patient. So, in one uh, response to the rulings, in one fell swoop, the Supreme Court had swept aside a century of abortion restrictions and rendered 46 states' laws unconstitutional, but initial response to the landmark decision was subdued and overshadowed by other political issues. Many Protestant leaders either did not publicly object to the ruling or expressed outright approval, but Catholic bishops protested immediately. Oh, listen, I'm Catholic and this is bullshit and regional anti-abortion groups, which had been fighting liberalization laws in their own states. Catholic, y'all need to get the hell out of this. You done screwed shit up in the past 2,000 years. Like, just go away. Um, uh, Catalyst within weeks into a national movement determined to see the decision reversed. Okay, so... So, meanwhile, American women responded in droves before Roe and Doe estimates suggest there were about 130,000 illegal abortions each year in the United States. Afterward, as uh, Center for Disease Control st statisticians documented, the number dropped to 17,000 in 1975. The number of women formally determined to have died due to an illegal abortion dropped from 39 in 1972 to 3 in 1975 and they wrote that with the continued increase in legal abortion services illegal abortion may soon be virtually eliminated as a cause of death mm, 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 mm. by 1980 nearly 1.6 million abortions were performed per year in the u.s over time the procedure became safer more accessible and less expensive and was offered in freestanding clinics on an outpatient basis instead of just hospitals um, as for Hodgins, the doctor who identified Minnesota, who defied Minnesota law, she never ended up serving jail time, and her conviction was overturned in the wake of Roe and Doe. 
Despite harassment for her public stance, she spent the rest of her career performing abortions and fighting to improve women's reproductive rights. All right, so um, in conclusion, um, once again, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has nothing to do with abortion, abortion and everything to do with controlling women. They are now going after birth control for women, yet they are not going after condoms, a form of birth control for men. Why is that? Because it has everything to do with controlling women and the minorities, period. They are now also after LGBTQIA plus community and their rights they just got. This is a mass blitz of reverting this country back 50, 60, 70 years ago and more. Now what do we do? Protest. Rally. Inform your neighbors, family members, community, co-workers on the facts. Make these taboo topics taboo no more by having those uncomfortable conversations. Now, here's the thing. When you are not one to go to rallies or protests, uh, I, you know, I'm kind of a give and take on it. Um, you know, depends on how in advance I know of them. Sometimes, obviously, rallies and protests, you know, you have to happen on the spur of the moment. Um, my thing on rallies and protests, um, I always like to go with somebody that I know really well that I feel comfortable going in the car with if it's not in my local town or meet up with somebody in a town that I'm kind of comfortable with or familiar with that town um, on knowing where I'm going and parking and meeting up with people there. Um, so, you know, sometimes my big thing is, is I don't like to go to the bigger cities, but I like to go to like smaller towns or local towns close by. And what I mean close by within a 30 minute to an hour drive, hour drive at the most. Um, and those towns are not very big, you know, um, so those are the ones that I kind of like to go to. And even then I like to go with people that I know. Um, cause I'm always, I don't, for whatever reason, I'm always weird about being in a big crowd and not knowing anybody and just feeling uncomfortable. I'm just like awkward that way. But when you're not one to go to those things, go to those rallies and those protests, um, find your niche and find your, what you feel comfortable doing, you know, be the behind the scene person. Like encourage others to go, encourage others to organize, or you organize one yourself and then you let the ball rolling with other people that are really good at organizing it. Hand out or forward or spread the word, hand out pamphlets, forward or spread the word of these rallies, do podcasts like me, you know, um, I know there's a lot of protests today um, against the, you know, Roe v. Wade ruling um, you know, I felt guilty for not going, you know, I get tripped, guilt tripped myself all morning, but I thought, you know, I, I'm not the one to go to those bigger areas and especially with COVID still around and I'm going out of the country here in a little bit, um, uh, this summer that I don't want to, you know, get sick anyway. So there's a lot of reasons, a lot of excuses that I didn't go to any of the rallies today, but then I felt, okay, so my place in all of this is to do podcasts, is to encourage other peoples to get out and about to hear their stories, to see that they are protesting, makes me feel good that there are people out there doing it. So do find your niche, find the, you know, be, be behind the scenes person, or, you know, if it's making posters for others to take to rallies and protests, then do that. Um, donate to places like Planned Parenthood and donate to organizations that are 
um, in support of minority rights. And the big thing is, is to vote people in office that will protect everyone, especially there's less fortunate, you know, for example, minorities, you know, whether it's, whether if you are a person of color, whether you are a woman, an immigrant, um, whether you are a woman that, uh, a woman of color. Um, so that's the big thing um, to do is, is that. So, you know, find your niche. Um, you know, if you like to go to protests, go for it. If you like to organize rallies, organize them. If you're really good at informing your neighbors, family members, community members, coworkers, whatever on the facts, then do it. If you like having, if you feel comfortable having those uncomfortable conversations with people and making those taboo topics taboo no more, do it. Um, if you're one for behind the scenes, be the person that's a big supporter of and, and do it behind the scenes. Go for it. Um, just make sure that our voices are being heard. And on that note, protest, rally, inform, organize, um, encourage others to join the fight. And most importantly, vote people in that will, that will protect us.